Good evening and welcome. Love Talk Radio. National Association of Black Defenders, you would set a race dialogue. To one in favor of the resolution, which requires the county to eliminate any policies that harbor racial discrimination. And while protests and chants of Black Lives Matter may not be echoing nightly through the streets anymore, work is still being done to build better relationships between local law enforcement and the community. Some of that work is happening in Yuba County through a group called Race Dialogues. Their goal, to find solutions to race-based division through compassionate conversations. Black Lives Matter! We the chants, marches, rallies, and sights of fist in the air are no longer visible on a daily basis here in Northern California. But calls for racial justice continue in the form of discussions. Race Dialogues. A group of eight different people with four common goals. Create a learning community, deepen understanding of systematic racism and its effect on today's institutions, culture and beliefs, improve skills in countering racism and organizing for racial justice, and network in a way that strengthens and expands outreach, influence, and effectiveness in overcoming systematic racism. Johnson, I spoke with four members, Joyce Pope, founder of the Tri-County African American Alliance, Yesenia Kachu, student support specialist at Marysville Joint Unified School District, Nayati Melissa Cleveland, community activist, and Susan Allen, teacher and author. The group says race dialogues is paramount for individuals to heal and move forward. This is the time. This is the moment. We are here now and we need to look this issue in the face and we need to have those dialogues and we need to grow from that experience because it, we all can agree that it is a really uncomfortable time. It is a real uncomfortable experience to reach out and have those kinds of communications, but we know as a group here that our community can do that. The emphasis that I want to bring out in this is building the bridges between communities, people, individuals. Um, we all have different backgrounds. We all work at different places and have lived in different areas. We have such an array of diverse backgrounds, even with me and Joyce, having the same racial background on the outside, you know, we still have different upbringings, different experiences. So I think the race dialogue is not just good for cross races, but it's good for us in, inside our race too, to understand different points of view. My goal is to propagate an understanding of what's happening with systemic racism in our country. Taking a proactive approach, the group has already held successful roundtable discussions between local law enforcement and the community, helping bridge the gap. Cleveland says it's led to more positive engagement from police at community events. So we've had Juneteenth, things like that have been more public, publicized since then. The backpack giveaways that they've done for back to school. The police have helped the community in those giveaways more. So I do believe that it started bridging a gap. However, I believe that it only, it was only a drop in the ocean. I believe that it knocked on the door, but unless we continue to do more of those, then it would have been for nothing. Race Dialogue says their discussions with police took place well before the death of George Floyd, who died while in custody of Minneapolis police. Floyd's death sparked months of unrest across the country and put a renewed spotlight on law enforcement's use of excessive force 
violence and racism. Since the incident, Race Dialogue says they've been working to schedule another discussion with their local law enforcement agencies. The hope is to come to an understanding so that what happened in Minnesota doesn't happen in their community. I expect more growth in the future because they were receptive to us before, and I expect the police department to continue to be receptive to our, our ideas because these are ideas that are supporting the community at large, and I believe the community would appreciate that as well. Members of Race Dialogues have been hard at work these last few months. They successfully implemented a four-credit workshop on the film 13th at Yuba College. Khalif Browder was walking home from a party when he was stopped by police. A galvanizing documentary which refers to the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which permits slavery as a punishment for crime. We're going to discuss each part and how it pertains to today, how it pertains back then, and how it connects. They plan to offer additional panel discussions with Yuba Sutter community leaders and law enforcement. They're also holding book discussion groups to enlighten the public on systematic racism. The goal is to pass along valuable information that will be sustained in the community for years to come. Race Dialogues does realize not everyone is open, ready, and willing to learn. But for those who are, this is a new day. None of us have been here before. We've never had the courage to talk about race face-to-face -face with all the individuals that it affects. It is not the black person's responsibility to teach our white comrades in regard to race and the pain it has caused us as a group of people in this country. But in order to heal, in order to go forward, I think all the players in the community have a place. We all have a place today at the table. As for what a positive path forward looks like. Getting rid of implicit biases. Understanding that we are more alike than we are different. Mm -hmm. It looks like having a community where the police aren't policing the community but one with the community, that they're helping the kids cross the street and not chasing the kids across the street. We all know that can happen, but at least try. And we want to see that effort. And I, I look forward to All right, thank you. Welcome to House of Gospel, Blah, Radio. Coming to you from 231 6th Avenue, this National Association of Black Defenders Human Rights versus Civil Rights Conference, March the 22nd. Live call in, telephone number is 347-202-0317. If you're interested in talking about human rights versus civil rights, you might want to know what is human rights versus civil rights. Human rights are rights that you have simply because you are a human being. Civil rights are rights that are given to you as because of you are a member of a city, county, community, state, nation, and those are your civil rights. Human rights are rights where anybody in the world can jump in, I don't care what country you are from, because human rights are universal. Human rights versus civil rights. This is our final planning conference Monday, March the 22nd. 6 p.m. to uh, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 
phone conference meeting, call in to speak with me and their host, yours truly, Freddie Howard, 713-955-0464, uh, to call and talk to human rights uh, about human rights versus civil rights. Human Rights Watch depends the right, defends the rights of people in 90 countries worldwide, worldwide, spotlighting abuses, bringing per- perpetrators to justice. Human Rights Watch, 355th Avenue on the 34th floor there in New York, New York, 10118-3299, USA, and you can reach them at 1-212-290-4700. Human Rights versus Civil Rights Conference is scheduled for March the 28th, 29th, 30th, and 31st. Uh, this will be right here on House Theater and Gospel Blog Talk Radio. You can call in to speak to me at 713-955-0464 or 347-202-0317, 713-955-0464. Let's uh, go to uh, some of our information that we have on uh, the National Association of Black Defenders. Who is the National Association of Black Defenders? The National Association of Black Defenders is located at 1629 Case, Northwest Suit 300, Washington, D.C. Telephone number is 202-852-4816-561-236-2024. For legal counsel, 202-852-4816. Equality is about ensuring that every individual has an equal opportunity to make the most of their lives and talents. It is also the belief that no one should have power and poor life chances because of the way they were born. When they come from and work, they believe or whether they have a disability. What is the true meaning of equality? Equality means the state of being equal. It is one of the ideals of a democratic society. So the fight to obtain different kinds of equality like racial equality, gender equality, or equality of opportunity between rich and poor is often associated with progress toward that ideal of everyone being truly equal. You can go to uh, Dictionary of Equality, and this is what it says. Social equality is a state of affairs in which all people within a specific society or isolated group have the same status and possible all respect, possibly including civil rights, freedom of speech, property rights, equal access to certain social goods and social services. However, it may also include health, equality, economic equality, and other social securities. Social equality requires the absence of legal legally enforced social class of uh, caste boundaries and the absence of discrimination motivated by an inalienable part of a person's identity. So, for example, sex, gender, ethnicity, age, sexual orientation, origin, case, income, or property, language, religion, conviction, opinion, health, or disability must absolutely not result in unequal treatment under the law and should not reduce opportunities unjustly flowered. Why do we need equality in society? Productivity, people 
who are treated fairly and have equal opportunities are better able to contribute socially and economically to the community and to enhance growth and prosperity, confidence, and equality. An equally and fair society is likely to be safer by reducing entrenched social and economic disadvantage. More information for you. Equality and Human Rights Commission. Understanding equality. Understanding equality. Equality, why it matters. Equality Now, a special project in conjunction. It will take place in March. Human rights for all. Human rights. Human rights are inherent to all human beings, regardless of race, sex, national ethnicity, language, religion, or any other status. Human rights include the rights to life, liberty, freedom from slavery, torture, freedom of opinion and expression, the right to work and educate, and many more. Everyone is entitled to these rights without discrimination. Without discrimination. What do you mean by human rights? Human rights are the basic rights and freedoms that belong to every person in the world from birth until death. The fact is just because you are a human being. They apply regardless of where you are from, what you believe, or how you choose to live your life. These basic rights are based on shared values like dignity, fairness, equality, respect, and independence. Human rights advocates for responsibility, for ensuring fair and equal treatment for all citizens. These advocates may focus on a specific population, such as individuals with mental health issues or those receiving Medicaid service. Human rights advocates could serve as a consultant to government agencies. Generally, job responsibility may include working with clients to obtain necessary services, developing educational literature, and conducting training sessions with their community and collaborating with both government and social services agencies to ensure equal access to services. Human rights advocates may conduct social research to better evaluate areas of need and assist with creating applicable programs. These advocates may also provide training to junior personnel. Human rights advocates may serve as a consultant to government agencies. They could also assist with obtaining funding for social services. Human rights advocates may serve in a management role with duties ranging from creating and maintaining a budget to developing strategies goal for the organization. Five ways human rights help to fight for social justice. Five ways human rights help to fight for social justice. Promotion of equality, anti-discrimination, welfare system, Employment rights, government accountability. Five ways human rights help to fight for social justice. Number one, promotions of equality. Anti-discrimination. Welfare system. Employment rights. Government accountability. Can human rights bring social justice? While human rights do not provide any magic bullet to solving social and economic injustice, the framework of human rights can channel social justice activism in ways that are beneficial to alleviating unnecessary suffering. The United Nations, peace, dignity, and equality on a healthy planet. Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights. 
the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Let's go to that. Universal Declaration of Human Rights. All right. Let's go back. Uh, let's see here. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that great information. Okay. Great information here for you on the House of the Gospel Blog Talk Radio as we continue to go into a program for tonight. Human rights versus civil rights. What does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? We're going to do a search over human rights, human rights and civil rights. Okay. Okay. Human rights, civil rights, human rights. Welcome to the Center for Civil and Human Rights. My name is Nicole Moore, and I'm the manager of education here. At the Center for Civil and Human Rights, it's our mission to empower you to take the protection of every human's rights personally. And so we do that by telling the stories of the American Civil Rights Movement and tying it with the global human rights movement. At the Center, we have three unique gallery experiences. And on our very first floor, you have Voice to the Voiceless, the Morehouse College Martin Luther King Jr. Collection. In this space, it rotates every three or four months, and what you'll be able to experience are the actual papers and documents of Dr. King. So you're gonna see his books, letters, telegraphs, outlines of his speeches, and this is one of the few places in the world that you're gonna actually see his original papers. Coming up to our second floor, which is our main floor, you're gonna see Rolls Down Like Water, the American Civil Rights Movement. And this gallery brings you through in 1954, so you start to see a segregated Atlanta, and you're going to go all the way until April of 1968 with the assassination of Dr. King in Memphis, Tennessee. When students walk into the space, what you're going to notice immediately is that you're going to see the segregationists and you're going to hear their voices. But we not only focus on the segregation, we also look at how African-American communities thrived in this environment. And so you're going to see the institutions in Atlanta that made Atlanta great. You're going to take a look at Sweet Auburn, and you're going to see the Royal Peacock. You're going to see colleges like Morehouse and Spelman. So you're going to see how these communities were able to stay successful when basically the odds are stacked against them. And then coming into our second portion, which is the movement catches fire. And what you're going to see then is you're going to meet individuals like Ruby Bridges, the six-year-old who integrated her school in Louisiana. You're going to see Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott. One of the most emotional yet important pieces, I think, of the center is our sit-in counter. Visitors are invited to sit at the lunch counter and go through a simulation of what it would have been like to actually sit and hear the torments and the taunts and understand that nonviolence was not passive-aggressive. So you get to experience just a small portion of what they would have experienced. And you get to ask yourself, could I have done it? But the one thing that really brings people together is when they come into the space that we're in right now, which is the March on Washington. And in August 1963, over 250,000 people, black, white, Latino, Asian, they all descended upon Washington, D.C. to fight for jobs and freedoms. And it was the largest peaceful protest held in our country at that time. 
Many of you guys know the March on Washington for Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. But here you're going to learn about A. Philip Randolph and Dorothy Height and Bayard Rustin, the organizers of the events. They had a list of demands that they presented. And they had various speakers so that everybody could understand that we can have a peaceful protest. And all we want is jobs and freedom and equality in that. In Spark of Conviction, the global human rights movement, you're going to take the experiences that you learned during the American Civil Rights Movement, and you're going to understand that these issues aren't just in the United States. You're going to see protests from all over the world. So when you walk into the space, you'll see these mirrors, and they'll ask, who like you? And you'll have different adjectives that you can choose from to say who like you is threatened around the world. And what happens is once you choose an adjective, there's a person that comes and talks to you in this mirror. And based on the adjective that you chose, that's going to be your experience if you were to go to their country. And so we use that to bring the connection to you so that you understand that these issues are very real. And it's up to us to make sure that we can change how these rights are viewed. You'll also be introduced to some defenders of human rights, like Nelson Mandela, Dr. King again, and Gandhi. You're also going to see some of the offenders of human rights, like Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Pol Pot, and Uganda's Idi Amin. And in this space, we want you to understand that these groups of people either helped or harmed large groups of people. And when you understand that and then see in the middle of the space modern-day human rights defenders, you'll see that human rights and activism doesn't look a certain way. And so it doesn't matter if you don't have the very best in clothing or you're not all clean-cut. Are you willing to make a change? And are you willing to take a stand? Then that's what really matters. But no matter what you take away from the Center for Civil and Human Rights, we hope that you're inspired to act and that you take the protection of every human's rights personally. Hi, and welcome to the overview for the Center for Civil and Human Rights exhibit located here in Atlanta, Georgia. My name is Kelly Bennett. I'm going to walk you through briefly of my recent visit to the center, to the museum. If you're familiar with Atlanta at all, the center is located walking distance from the Coke uh, exhibit as well as the Georgia Aquarium. It's adjacent to Centennial Park. In terms of parking, there are numerous parking options. There are parking decks in the area as well as street parking. I park across the street from the center about a block up and I only paid $5. So it was not a very long walk and it was not very pricey to secure my vehicle. Uh, again, this is downtown Atlanta. Uh, you will want to ensure that uh, in entrance, you'll see in a few minutes that there is a checkpoint or security point as you come into the facility. And I mention this because we went with a group and with the group, particularly with a group that has a lot of ladies, handbags, strollers, uh, diaper bags, etc. This can be a lengthy process, so please make sure that you're aware that this is uh, one of the things that you'll have to go through in terms of trying to get into the museum. So in order to expedite the process, just be aware and make sure you have all the items ready to be checked and they'll flow properly.
case you wanted to follow the museum, this is their Twitter handle. Our tour began on the third floor. There are a total of three floors in the museum. And I'll pop in and out just to kind of make some key points about different items that I think are significant enough for someone looking to visit for the first time. So I hope you enjoy the video. One of the things that I like most about the museum is the interactivity. Now, I did come with my family, which included my son, who was 14, and my daughter, who was 7. And I found it very easy, not only for myself to navigate through the archives, but also for my children, inclusive of my 7-year-old. Uh, a lot of the uh, mechanisms are touchscreen, uh, similar to any interactivity you would have with your smartphone or your iPads, your tablets, etc. So I thought that was very intuitive on the behalf of the museum and the um, people who put this together to make the information so accessible and so user-friendly. What I found is throughout the museum, much of the information was displayed in like manner. You'll see as we go throughout the video.
just so that you're aware in terms of the maneuverability of persons who are seniors or handicapped, there are elevators in the building. Don't think that you have to climb the stairs. There are elevators throughout the facility. One minute until showtime.
where do human rights come from? The idea that human beings should have set our basic rights and freedom has deep roots in Britain. Landmark development in Britain include the Magna Carta of 1215, the Habeas Corpus Act of 1679, the Bill of Rights of 1689. You should also take a look at the British Library website for more information on these and other icons of liberty and progress. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The atrocity of Second World War made the protection of human rights an international priority. An international priority after World War, the Second World War. And that is based on how they did the Jewish people. That was absolutely atrocious, what the German people did to Germans, to the Jewish people. The number is six million, as well rehearsed and well known. Millions, killings, and murders. Six million human beings. The United Nations was founded in 1945. The United Nations allowed more than 50 members to state uh, states to contribute to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, adopted in 1948. <clears throat> this was the first attempt to set out a global level of fundamental rights and freedom shared by all human beings. All right. That is powerful. We're going to um, watch a video. volume up. Hopefully it will come up for us. Well, let's go back <clears throat> just for a minute. All right. What is the Declaration? What is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? What are human rights? What is the universal declaration of human rights? The Universal Declaration of Human Rights is a historic document which outlines the rights and freedom everyone is entitled to. It was the first international agreement on the basic principles of human rights. It laid the foundation for human rights protection that we have here in the UK today. It formed because of the European Convention of Human Rights, which is in turn was incorporated in the United Kingdom Law for the Human Rights Act of 1998. Worldwide influence. <clears throat> Nearly every state in the world has accepted the declaration. It has inspired more than 80 international conventions, treaties, and as well as numerous regional conventions and dom uh, for domestic laws. Uh, it has translated in more than 360 languages. It has been the catalyst for improving human rights protection for groups such as disabled people, indigenous people, and women. International Bill of Human Rights. The International Bill of Human Rights is an informed name given to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights along with the following UN Human Rights Treaties. Let's check back right quick to the studio. 
see if there's anybody calling in. Nobody calling in. Let us continue. All right. <clears throat> the International Bill of Human Rights is an informal name given to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, along with the following UN Human Rights Treaties, International Covenant of Civil Rights, Political Rights, International Covenant of Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. You can find out more about the International Bill of Human Rights in this United Nations fact sheet. One of the more one of our main job <clears throat> is to make sure the UK and the other treaties, such as the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. Powerful information here. All right. Let's uh, look at some more things here. What are human rights? Let's go back. The Human Rights Act. The Human Rights Act. What is the Human Rights Act? The Human Rights Act of 1998 sets out the fundamental rights and freedoms that everyone in the United Kingdom is entitled to find out more. Exercising your human rights, our human rights, the Human Rights Act. We are going to play a little music for you. We're going to type in the word civil. We're talking about human rights and civil rights. We're going to type in the word civil. C-I-C-I-L. Okay. Let's see what comes up from the word civil. Alabama Civil Rights History, an interview with H.B. Williams, man, and Ruth Williams. H.B. Williams interviewed civil rights activists. Alabama Sister Civil Rights Activist, H.B. Williams. Civil rights. Human rights. We played that over. All right. We're going to play a portion of an interview, just part one. It runs about 60 minutes. And it's uh, Mr. H.B. Williams, a local activist civil rights leader that we interviewed uh, some time ago. Um, Mr. H.B. Williams is a civil rights activist, and I had a great opportunity to work with him over a number of years. Call America. Mr. William, Ms. William, welcome to House of the Gospel, and this is a historic day. Um, I was telling you all before we got started that I should have taken this opportunity with Mr. Ezra Cunningham, but uh, God did not see fit. But I said to myself, I would not allow that to happen with you, Mr. Williams and Ms. Williams. Good evening and welcome. You all can start back as far as you want to go, uh, Mr. Williams. Your first coming to this community and uh, your relationship with the NAACP, uh, all the organizations that you've been associated with for years and years. Uh, again, welcome. <laughs> 
Thank you, Fred. I guess, first of all, I would start back probably before I was directly involved in any civil rights activities. Uh, a good friend of mine and all of ours, and Papa Chat, who was the father of the civil rights movement in this kind of state, Elder Cunningham. Charles, who was a nephew, I believe, of Elder, and I were classmates, schoolmates at Alabama State. And my first association with Brother Cunningham was on weekends when we needed a ride home. The other would always come up and uh, pick us up in this county. And of course then that necessitated a movement that I had to defend myself and a means of trying to recapture my position, uh, my employment uh, in this area, which uh, as a result of uh, assistance from Brother Cunningham and from uh, local organizations and some of the organizations that already existed, such as the NAACP, but then there was uh, organizations here in the county that uh, Cunningham was affiliated with, and which we organized uh, later on that was responsible for supporting me for 10 years uh, during the time that I was uh, unemployed, uh, directly unemployed, so far as the Board of Education was concerned. Okay, uh, Mr. Williams. Yes. Go back to um, um, the year, if you can remember, the year that you was employed over at uh, Monroe Intermediate now, which we call Packers Bend, across the river, to that it, when that first um, began, um, if you can remember that year, there are stories uh, written in newspapers. I have some of them on file here. But if you can, just recapture from what you said and go back to starting that, that year, what year that, that this was beginning. I know this uh, after schools were integrated, but um, go yeah. back to that year if you can recall that uh, year. My wife may have to help me out with some of these dates. But uh, I may go a little further back. I, I took just an overview. I taught about four years as principal at uh, Purdue Hill before that school was closed, and then I was transferred to Frisco City. I taught in the classroom there a couple of years, and after that time, I was transferred to Fredenburg, uh, where I started off at Tom Springs in '54. 1954. That was my mm -hmm. first. Uh, employment at Tom Spring. Uh, after all that, then I was transferred over to a uh, little Peace Street, which I served until such time that I was, well, I mentioned very little. Mm -hmm. And Purdue Hill. I started at Purdue Hill, Frisco City, uh, Tom Springs, Dreadburg, yeah. and uh, then back to Low Peace Street as principal. Uh, I think my, basically, we may go to the point where I was finally dismissed as principal by the Board of Education uh, because of my civil rights activities, which were not so very much at that time, but uh, being affiliated with Ezra Cunningham, which was uh, very strong in civil rights movement, 
I automatically was branded a civil rights activist. And of course I had no objections to it because I knew that what was going on was rightfully what needed to uh, take place and if we were going to ever overcome that problem, somebody had to step up and uh, help Mr. Cunningham, who had done a wonderful job in civil rights movements. And any time anybody was branded at that time as being in association with Elsa Cunningham, you became a hitman all of a sudden. And, of course, I was well aware of that when we took on this position. We didn't just start that way, but... It started kind of accidentally as I started off saying I was in college at that time with his nephew. I think it's his nephew, Charles. Mm -hmm. He used to come up on weekends and pick us up and bring us home free. So naturally we became uh, appreciative of the services that he was giving us. And uh, he didn't have to take us back. We could always get back on our own. Mm -hmm. But uh, every weekend most weekends that we wanted to come, he was available to uh, get us home and back if we had to use him. He was very open-hearted, and we began to appreciate him as a leader and as a associate and even as a, a, a relative, because Charles was his nephew, and of course, he treated us both the same, so I began to think of him as an uncle of mine, just like Charles did. But this is basically what got me involved because later on Charles left the county. But uh, when I graduated from college and got a job here, I began to still affiliate and associate Ophelzo because I recognized that what he was doing was worthwhile and it was certainly a, 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 a something that was uplifting uh, my people. Uh, not only in Monroe County, but in the state of Alabama and in the South. So uh, this is basically what uh, got me involved into the civil rights movement. And as a result of my affiliation with him, uh, and as I mentioned, that we started off teaching at Tunnel Springs. And, of course, at that time it was just not popular for a teacher or a person employed by the Board of Education to be active in the NAACP and other civil rights organizations. But at the same time, we never let that detour us because we knew the value of what those organizations could do toward moving our people forward. So we naturally participated, and of course, as expected, we eventually lost our job as a result of that. And uh, of course, we were out of the teaching business for 10 years, but we continued to uh, perform and work seriously with the uh, civil rights movement. And of course, we filed a suit against the Board of Education for the unemployment. And uh, after 10 years of unemployment, our suit was uh, considered and the court ruled in our favor. And of course, we were paid for 10 years, back pay, and re-employed and given a position as principal in Monroe County, which we served uh, diligently for the rest of our active time and we retired uh, as a principal in this county. And life 
in general was at first difficult. My wife and family was very close and we worked as a team and we were able to survive. She of course had a perfect job and helped and took care of uh, many of the obligations that we had. And we never, we fortunately, and thank God for that, we never lost any property or any farms or anything that we had so far as making a decent living was concerned. And we had owned a couple of houses and lots, which we still maintain until this date. And it was a blessing from God and assistance from our friends and organizations, especially in WACP, uh, B10, Alabama New South, and all of the other organizations that we have been affiliated with that kept us above the water. And we're grateful for our opportunity to have had an opportunity, rather, to uh, work with Brother Cunningham because he was truly uh, the backbone of the civil rights movement and Monroe County in particular. Um, Ms. William, um, in your relationship, uh, being supportive of Mr. William, give us a little taste of um, what that was like to know when that uh, dealing and fighting the issues of civil rights. Uh, I'm going back to um, Mr. H.B. William, uh, third from the left here in the picture, uh, where he was an uh, activist in the first uh, civil rights uh, civil rights uh, uh, NAACP organization here at Monroe County. That was back in 1963. Being supportive of him and his endeavors and what he was out there doing, Tell us a little bit about what that was like so far as in the family structure and keeping the kids and, and, and knowing that he was out there on that road or, or dealing with situations where our white brothers was not pleased at what he was doing. Going back to those days, I say, it wasn't easy. It was never easy. Mm -hmm. But we had a close relationship with God. That was, I guess that that was the main thing, the main issue that kept me strong and our family strong because all of this was going on. Yes, we had to tell our children these things was happening, but they didn't understand it. But they stood with us too. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. It was very fearful and scary. A lot of people don't believe that because working with civil rights is a dangerous game mm -hmm. to me. Mm -hmm. And and you don't know when they're coming after you. Mm -hmm. The one thing that came to my mind, but we stood, we stuck together. We had to, we had to stick together because it was a promise that whatever my husband went through, we had to live through it. Whether we, we 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 done without a lot of things, of course, you know. But that was part of the the movement. Mm -hmm. We had to suffer. Yes, we did. It wasn't easy. But like he was saying, we, we had a lot of good friends that came to our rescue and helped us while we were going through our struggle. And our parents was right there for us, too. And that's, one, that's another thing that really helped us. 
that they was there for us. Mm-hmm. They never turned their backs on us. They were scared like everybody else, you know. But in um, our overall, we uh, we discussed it. We we had to discuss a lot of time. I was not told of things that was happening, but sometimes I get it from other people. Mm-hmm. But then I had to, you know, punch it in my heart, as the Bible said, until it blew over. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that kept us there, we knew that one day mm-hmm. this thing would be over, which it will never be over now, you know, because it's still moving today. Mm-hmm. And to me, I feel like it's getting it's worse, but we are not by ourselves anymore. But like everybody's involved in this movement thing, so we stay, we hanging in there trying to, and, and we have had a lot of prayers and stand on God's side, mm-hmm. and that's what kept me strong. Mm-hmm. In 1950, in 1950, when the state of Alabama outlawed the NAACP. Mm-hmm. Can either one of you, uh, especially you, Mr. William, talk about that, the fact that you all had established the NAACP chapter and you all, this picture that we looked at earlier was taken over there in Packers Bend, which was across the river. Can you remember in 1950 um, what that was like, knowing that you all were part of an organization that the state of Alabama had outlawed? Well, yes, uh, it really was a problem, but then on the other hand, it it just created a a detour type of program that we had. We realized that uh, even though it wasn't illegal operating in the state, but it had established a mindset, and particularly with Hillary Cunningham and Frank Marshall and James Marshall and several others of our leaders, little bumpers and a bunch of them over in the Packers being able, that we realized that with the name of the NAACP or not, we had a personal obligations to carry on as if it was still in existence. And it didn't really stop our activity. It just stopped us probably for a moment from using the, the name of the NAACP. But in our hearts, we knew that we were still operating, we were still functioning, we still were doing the things that was necessary to do to keep our people uh, officially organized and working in the various communities all over the county. Mm-hmm. And uh, even like I said, we, we were not going to did, we not going to operate under the name, but we still uh, kept the activities going. Uh, we had groups like Monroe County Leadership Action Committees, uh, Beatrice action committee mm-hmm. and various different other committees that uh, were, were born out of the fact that the kind uh, and state had kind of abandoned uh, the NAACP but in our hearts we still were NAACP and our uh, activities were still motivated in the same way that it had always been when it comes to the uh, operation of civil rights because mm-hmm. we knew that things were not what they should have been and that unless somebody stepped forward and started a movement, then it would never get there because mm-hmm. it was necessary that uh, we organize and get the 
kind of memberships together and people who are thinking in uh, one mindset. And I'm, I'm, I'm so appreciative a lot of other names. I don't think we'd have time to go to call them all, but in all of the communities, we had a uh, leadership organization, no kind of leadership action committee. And we had uh, groups all over the county that uh, worked diligently to uh, keep this movement going and to bring it forward to where it is to date. And I, I, I dare not mention the fact that there were, even though there was a racial problem, but I, I can truthfully say that there were a lot of whites that some secretly and some openly that encouraged us diligently because they too recognized the fact that it was not right and that uh, they couldn't do it, but they could support us when we stepped out there and started to move it on it. Okay. And uh, by the way, the, uh, the vice president of that first uh, 1963, um, well, prior to that, uh, Vice President was Mr. H.B. William. Uh, Mr. Willie Frank Marshall at that time was the president. Right. Um, I can remember um, from my early days of uh, my mother uh, as well as uh, um, a lady that passed today, uh, Miss Easley, and some old ladies here in Beatrice, they would uh, sell over at the community center hot dogs, hamburgers, anything that, sausage, sandwich, whatever. For whenever you guys were out on the road, especially Mr. Cunningham, they would sell right. so that they would have could go to black hotels or wouldn't have to stop at the restaurants and, and eat. Those were people behind the scenes. Oh, yeah. Um Ms. Nana, do you recall at, at any time uh, um, in in the past when those ladies would, I, I can remember as a kid running around, they would be up there at the center selling stuff, and there wasn't no free stuff. But you, you, you had to have a dime, a nickel, something. You had to come up with something to get some of that food because that money was going to go to y'all for y'all travel when y'all was out there on the road. Um, well, first, Mr. William, what was that like to know that, these women in this community, and I don't know about down there in Monroe or down there where y'all live, but I know about up here in Beatrice, would get together and cook that food and yeah. sell that food so y'all have stuff out on the road. We had ladies from all over the county, all every community in this county. Uh, every now and then, people, we would get together as a solid group. But each individual community, because Black and Packer being, those people were kind of shut off mm. by the river. But uh, they, too, would, would participate and cooperate, and that took place, Frisco City, URAB, mm -hmm. all over the county. We had uh, little groups like that that supported mm -hmm. the movement. And, of course, uh, they were well uh, uh, organized and kept intact of the needs, and whenever there was a need, uh, they were always there. Went into action. Right. Ms. William, uh, do you recall anything in particular, um, a trip or anything that that, that's, that sticks in your mind that really had you praying even harder when they was out there? 
Is there any particular date or anything that sticks in your mind that you could recall now? My job was to stay at home, take care of the children, protect him, mm-hmm. the children. But we did have people that supported us, but they didn't want to make it public. Make, pu- make it publicly yeah. because they didn't want their jobs to be taken away from yeah. them too. So it was like it was like you said, it was a fearful thing. Mm-hmm. But we did get some support. Mm-hmm. I, I I can remember um, what most of people didn't understand was, and Mr. Cunningham used to tell me about it, and you can uh, uh, tell me your uh, position on it too, Mr. Williams. Just like Miss M- Williams said, the people that had the good jobs, right? Some folk weren't doing too much. Yeah, they were scared of losing their job. Right. So they had to lay low, and the ones that did help you guys, they had to make that almost secret. Mm-hmm. Because Mr. Cunningham used to tell me the, the, the folks that they had the good jobs, you, you didn't see them folks out front. Right. Because the, the superintendents and whatever, just like they did you, Mr. William, would take their jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they knew that. And, I, of course, they, that was... That was uh, Understandable because they're going to use whatever they could to discourage it. But uh, I said one thing, and this was before I got into it, about Mr. Cunningham. He was not a fearful person about jobs or about his life or his health or anything else. Mm-hmm. He was uh, dedicated to that cause, and it was because of his dedication that encouraged me that. Somebody else had to stand out there with him. Mm-hmm. And so I made the decision uh, to get with him and to, help, to let him help me to organize groups in the various communities. But I, I give him all of the credit so far as the initial uh, stands were concerned because it seemed to me that he was fighting a battle by himself for the most part. Mm-hmm. And uh, he didn't seem to mind it. Even people that uh, sometimes, rather than speak to him on if he in town, there are some black folks that will cross the street and go somewhere rather than let folks see them speaking, talking to Elder Cunningham. Mm-hmm. It was just that bad. Mm-hmm. And, and it was a result of that that, that that encouraged me to say, well, now somebody, the man is out there trying to help us, and somebody's going to have to come to his side and uh, assist him. Because mm-hmm. if, if, if he's out there by himself, then we have lost the battle. Because mm-hmm. he can't stand out there. No man can stand alone forever. Mm-hmm. You've tried a while, but you're going to have to have some assistance. And as a result, we were able to uh, organize a few other leaders. I called some names while ago and got the whole, got, got local leaders from all over the county and all the communities in the county. Mm-hmm. Uh, to come together and formulate what we call the Monroe County Leadership Action Committee. And that was helped us to put this thing together and uh, oppose the system. And even though I lost the job, but I think I gained more than what I lost uh, I in 10 years mm-hmm. uh, without uh, employment by the Board of Education. Mm-hmm. But thank God, 
I never missed a payment on a house note or a car note or a grocery bill or nothing else that I endeavored in. And I always had a few dollars in my pocket. Mm -hmm. And I thank God for that. And I thank not only God, because I knew God that inspired uh, the citizens. It was because of the cooperation of these citizens that uh, we were able to survive and to fulfill our responsibilities. Okay. Um, during the um, years that you guys were active uh, as an organization, uh, NAACP, uh, there were many challenges that faced y'all, but one of those challenges was that in Monroe County, um, in the early uh, history of electing officials, um, there was a thing called districting. Mm -hmm. And uh, countywide, a black person could never get elected. So you guys brought a lawsuit, uh, litigation that, asked, that lasted for some over eight years. Right. And at the end of that, um, there was a compromise made with the county commissioners made uh, two districts out of four with uh, black majority voters. Um, tell us about that battle and um, what led to that. I, I, I kind of indicated what led to the battle, but tell us about the, this, that struggle prior to that and, and that battle itself in the courts. Well, when the courts do something uh, even today. Number one, it's very uh, influential because the court has the last word. So in order to uh, change anything that the court said or did or even change their opinion about anything, it meant that we as a people then had to stretch out and strengthen our uh, power, if I can use that word, uh, because power was what it was all about, really. In fact, we come up with a word, and we, and not, a lot of people didn't understand why, maybe, but the term black power came into existence, because mm -hmm. that was already white power, mm -hmm. and it wasn't any black power, because what little few people we had trying to do something, we were controlled primarily by white power. So it took a lot of emphasis being placed on black power and a lot of movement, and that was the thing that got us to start to organizing our people and to getting them to vote because we knew that the bottom line was when you got something that somebody wants or needs, then you got some power. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have any control over anything, then you don't have any power. So we started concentrating on uh, what we call the vote which was what we named black power and the black vote. And even though we run into a lot of opposition, and sometimes that opposition would be among our own people, mm -hmm. but we didn't give up. We kept fighting and kept fighting until once we got a certain status, a certain percentage of our people registered to vote, we could begin to feel that the power was there. Because then the white politicians started recognizing us and at least now they will come and ask us to vote for them. Mm -hmm. But prior to that, they didn't even worry about coming to us to ask about voting for nothing because mm -hmm. they had the whole bag in their hand. Mm -hmm. So we, we could feel a sense of responsibility and we could feel a sense of power as we gradually uh, increased our voting strength 
and just kind of in the state of Alabama all over. And that's another thing. We, we come up with state organizations. See, we had local groups, but then we come up with ADC, that was Alabama Democratic Conference, mm -hmm. which was a statewide organization, black organization, uh, created by Joe Reed and others in the uh, Montgomery area. But it reached out, and all of the counties in the state had branch offices. And uh, I guess say that 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 that, that uh, state democratic conference was very instrumental in uh, bringing about a change in the voting strength of getting black people organized. And uh, wasn't necessarily fighting against the whites, but we were fighting for our people. And we put up all the efforts to get our people registered to vote. And then after we got them registered to vote, we had a system where we could pool those votes. And of course, I don't know whether I uh, was so favorable of the idea of block voting or not, but on mm -hmm. our circumstances, that was the only way it was going to be affected. Mm -hmm. No point of beating our brains out to really vote, to vote for somebody else unless we were going to uh, get some results from those people. So when we got that block vote going and it became effective, uh, we didn't have to run black candidates all the time. Well, we could go our support to a certain white candidate, and that candidate would recognize our efforts and uh, give us some of the things that we needed if they were elected. Mm -hmm. And so we, we were very successful in uh, getting black people elected, but we were also successful in, in, in getting some white voters elected, and they too uh, were appreciative and uh, threw some support our way as relates to their being elected. Okay. I, that uh, lawsuit, that litigation lasted for um, eight years, mm -hmm. and the financing of that litigation, um, can you remember any key organizations or people during that time that um, pooled their resources or their land or whatever to pay those attorneys to handle that case? Because the litigation, uh, I imagine um, those in the power structures was hoping that uh, you all wouldn't last, right. but it did last, the litigation did last for a total of eight years. Right. How did y'all finance that? And well, we, we appealed to the churches and the pastors and the Christians and many communities, and it was at this time that people like Mr. and Mrs. Howard, uh, Real McIntosh, uh, Mr. Leo Bobble and Willie Williams and Joe Foster and uh, the Richardsons and all of the, and, and many more that are throughout the county because we were able to kind of, on a county-wide basis, reach out and get black leaders uh, from the various communities. And they, in turn, would work with those communities and have fish fries and uh, cake sales and whatever it took to raise money to uh, help us to support our movement and to keep people uh, active because we, we, we just didn't have, mm -hmm. we weren't financially able to do it without this type of uh, cooperation. And it was through those efforts that I give every community in this county uh, who came to our aid and uh, in their own way uh, supported the movement, 
Mm-hmm. It may not have been seen openly, but mm-hmm. I can say for sure that every community in Monroe County helped mm-hmm. to support this movement. And today we're so happy that we can say, well, we give all of these mm-hmm. leaders and all communities credit for the efforts in getting this thing going. Let me say this uh, in regards to uh, people that are watching this and listening to this. That is what makes the black struggle so powerful. A lot of times we only see the person out front, but there are some things working behind the scenes to make it happen. Like Ms. William at home making sure the kids safe and going back and forth to school and different things like that and not raising Issues that would bring attention to that 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 the, that the family would get harmed, you know. Uh, as a result of this litigation, the first person elected, as a result of this litigation being uh, settled, Mr. Alec Roberts became the very first black commissioner in Monroe County. Mm-hmm. Um, the second person to become commissioner as a result of this was Mr. Charlie, Car- Charlie McCorvey Jr. He's uh, deceased now. And uh, one of the things that I experienced is when Reverend Brown was running for the Board of Education because of you guys re- getting that cell and so forth, redistricting the white community. I was told this story by a number of times by Mr. Cunningham, and you, could, you can help me out on your interpretation of it, that they allowed... first. One of the premises for the suit that the black couldn't get elected countywide. Right. So, what the white I was told you you correct me if I'm wrong. I was told that the white stayed away from the polls in order to get Mr. Brown elected to try to defeat the case, so that when you went back to federal court, the courts were saying they could say, "Look, well, we right. got a black elected countywide. It can be happening." What they that premises for the suit is unfounded. Explain to us some of the workings of that and, and how you experienced that too. Give me your story on uh, what transpired during that time. Well, I guess psychologically some things started happening. See, the white politicians had an advantage over us because they had experience in political dealings. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it didn't take us long to copycat and catch on to what was going on. And we realized that uh, we were in a minority, but we had to manipulate that minority and uh, use it in a way that we could block a lot of things from happening, uh, even though we may not could stop it, but we could certainly change the, uh, uh, the, the manner in which it was going to be carried out. And by in our predominantly black communities like Beatrice and Packers Bend, mm-hmm. we could uh, dominate there because we could elect all of the officials, uh, representatives from those particular areas. And we were able to do that. And, of course, they had voices on the county boards and whatever, statewide or whatever. And when you put it all together, the black power that we said we didn't like to talk of it as such. Mm-hmm. But statewide, that black power, thanks to people like Joe Reed, uh, Turner, and many more, I can't think of all of the names, but mm-hmm. uh, utilized to 
get that black power organized statewide. And we began to get black representatives from the state, uh, from each districts, and to change that political structure all over the state. And then not only in Alabama, but that started taking place in all states. And we began to really feel the value of our black power movement because we began to put people in strategic positions that they could influence uh, the movement. And of course, occasionally I guess you're gonna have one or two blacks that will get in there and be influenced by the whites, but I think as a whole, and we can for surely say for her as our local county is concerned, and uh, Wilcock and most of our counties around, our black officials stayed black and they fought and organized as black leaders and helped to bring about other black leaders. And it made us give us more power. And even today, we have some black power that we can boast about as results of those black men and women who were able to stand tall back in the days of the beginning. Mm-hmm. Now, um, my history of... Um Returning here after my military time, uh, um, Mr. Cunningham was my mentor. Right. And you. Um, I want to go back to my father, uh, uh, Willie Howard. That's how I found out about you and Miss Nanny. Mm-hmm. My father and you all's family, when we were go to Monroe, there was one of the people that Dad was was interacting with us as a family was was you, Mr. Weaver. That's how right. that's how uh, my, my mom uh, after my father passed, my mom's and your relationship lasted until she passed. Right. And that's how I first uh, became aware of you. And, and my father used to, would talk about you and uh, Mr. Cunningham and uh, um, that relationship. If you can remember anything um, in relationship with my father working with you, if any situation or anything other than being supportive of you uh, in that relationship, how? He, he and your mother mm-hmm. were one of the strongest couples that we had in this district, in this era. And of course, that was felt throughout the county because we had, like I said, we organized and we had strong leadership in every community in this county. And certainly on this end, Mr. and Mrs. Howard was number one. And they, she in particular, put on sales and baked cakes or whatever was needed to raise funds and help the churches in this era. Uh, I didn't mention Pastor McIntosh, who was a very staunch oh, man. Uh, civil rights yeah. leader in this era mm-hmm. and for the whole county. And people like that, you just don't ever forget them. Mm-hmm. But uh, we, I could go on and on when it comes to individuals. Like I said a while ago, we had representation from all of the communities. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were very strong, mm-hmm. and that was one of the best 
things that could have happened because when you have been brought up in a community where black people are taught to oppose black people, to disagree, Mm -hmm. and that becomes a part of your mentality, it's kind of hard to turn that issue around. Mm -hmm. But thank God, and I have to give him the credit because I don't think it was any of us as individuals that could have done it. Mm-hmm. Well, that God's help, but somehow, uh, because we, a few of the smaller uh, black leaders was able to come together and make contacts and uh, create uh, issues mm-hmm. that, 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 that brought the attentions of this nation and this kind of state uh, to the black leadership and began to recognize it as such. Mm-hmm. And instead of trying to push it back and keep it on the cover as they had done down through the years. But they too had to recognize that it was time for black people to come up, be brought out front and uh, given the full privilege of voting rights and the full privilege of first-class citizenship. Mm -hmm. Because we didn't have the rights. We don't need to talk about you as a citizen if you're going to be deprived of your voting rights. Mm Well, I I remember uh, my dad telling me about the churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew about more new purchase up on the hill and Reverend McIntyre. Right. But my dad uh, would tell me about another church was down in Tonus Spring called Antioch, which yeah. is Antioch up on the hill now. Down in Monroeville, name some churches where NAACP meetings were held and where people would meet and plan strategies and things that y'all had to do. I, well, uh, we would do it at, well, in Monroe, the two basic churches that we used to go to, the biggest churches there, and they were Bethel and uh, Morningstar, which I was a member, and of course, we always had the cooperations of the pastors and the deacon boards and all that uh, to use them. But now, when we spread out all over the county, mm-hmm. we had our meetings at various churches. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, Sometimes, we, well, you always had, you, I, I figured we had the support of all the pastors, even though the pastors, like in the rural churches, pastors didn't live in that community. Mm-hmm. So like Packers Bend and places like that, uh, the pastor may not be there, but we had the, the blessings of the pastors and the deacon boards and all that. And we were able to uh, coordinate and get those communities to cooperate and it was through this means that we were able to get the political strength that we needed. And when we did start to uh, run in black candidates, we were able to uh, get some black candidates elected from all over the uh, black dominated, predominated uh, black communities. Mm-hmm. I, um, in my years of. Um Living here, I'm, I'm, I've reached that three score at 17 that God promises, uh, and I'm working strictly on grace now, according to the Bible. Right. You guys, uh, you are how old, Mr. Williams? 85. 85. And then? 83. 83. Y'all, y'all just like me and Mary. Me and Mary are two different, two years apart. But um, think about some of the. I can remember uh, Mr. Crawford 
Mr. Crawford used to tell me about um, my father and used to tell me about uh, Mr. Bob Crawford, I'm talking about on the hill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he used to tell me about uh, my dad and Mr. Cunningham and, and the Klan. And uh, he used to tell me that my dad was the number one man with Monroe Eichner years ago. Mm-hmm. So for the Klan and, and making sure the Klan didn't get to where they needed to get to, who they wanted to get <laughs> to. Um, but tell me about some of the situations that occurred here in Monroe County. I know about the time that they tried to get to Mr. Cunningham. You may have some recollections of that, but tell me about some of the, um, I might say, escapes or getaways or whatever where the Klan had planned on one thing and something else occurred. Any of them, if you can recognize well, them or remember any some of them. Some of them, I mean, some didn't materialize, but there have been several indirect and behind-the-scene moves to kind of get us disorganized and discourage us from meeting and things of that nature. Uh, we've had some burning of crosses and some hood marches. I mean, I, I can recall... Uh, when the when the crew clerks used to meet over the county at the uh, Coliseum, and of course I lived right across the street from the Coliseum, and they would meet and march and come out from the Coliseum right in front of my house and go through town with the hoods on and all that kind of stuff. But believe it or not, my children and one of them is sitting here right now. They used to go out to the road and laugh at them and wave at them. And, 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 and not showing no fear, they thought they were there to play with. They didn't know. They thought they were just like a a thank you parade or something. <laughs> and I didn't ever tell them no different. And uh, see now, a lot of parents were going, "Come on back here and get." I didn't say hiding and yeah. I didn't say a word to them. They were out there and hollering at them all they want to. They had a head in the can and they throw they throw that and they pick it up and eat. <laughs> But, uh, they didn't harm us at all. No, they, they, the reason they didn't harm us. No, uh, they just did that thing. They knew they us. That. The hooded people knew us. Sure. But mm. so we, we didn't know them. Well, I, I knew some of them. We, after we find out I I, I, <laughs> later on. But uh, they knew us. They knew who we were. Right. Not sure. Yeah, they played with them. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to tell you... Uh, <laughs> That's the first time I'm 70 years old. That's the first time I had a laugh in relationship to the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> <laughs> you should have seen it. You should have seen it. Uh, we didn't, you know, I wish we had had cameras back in them days, though, Freddie. Uh-huh. Take pictures of it. To uh, I don't ever remember all the time that they had performed or whatever they had done. Mm-hmm. That you saw pictures of them. Mm-hmm. They didn't. Uh, I don't guess they allowed that, did they? Because they didn't really want Monroe to know because yeah. most of those uh, merchants downtown mm-hmm. were the clan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They still mm-hmm. Now my my uh, <coughs> my experience with them was that, um, and you know about the story, Mister William. My um, back in that day, just like we had to get off the street to allow. Right. Uh, uh, our white brothers and sisters to pass. We had to get out of the road to let them pass on the road because roads were just one lane. Yeah, right, one lane. And uh, one Saturday afternoon, <laughs> I was coming from Old Star Quarter, 
visiting grandma and uh, uh, Miss Elliot Sadler, the lady that used to run the post office. Ooh, she could talk to you so nasty. Oh yeah. Ooh, she could say stuff to you in the in the post office, throw your money on the floor. Ooh. But anyway, one day I was coming from Old Star Quarter and I was coming back, and my father had had passed. Um, Mr. Willie Howard had passed, right. and 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 mom, with some of the proceeds from his death, had went down to Ford and, and bought a brand new Ford truck, blue and white, with a red pinstripe down the side. That was a pretty truck. But anyway, mom would tell us, "You five boys, and uh, well, four boys and six girls," mm-hmm. and he would she would tell us. Whoever got a stripe on that on that truck, <laughs> they wasn't driving that truck Sunday. Mm-hmm. So one Saturday evening, coming out from Old Star Quarter, I could see Miss Sally, the dust, mm-hmm. as she heading toward me, coming down that 16, we call it 16 <laughs> Hill. Man, there was no way I was going to get in the ditch, put a scratch on that truck, <laughs> and not be able to drive it Sunday. Mm-hmm. So I get, didn't get out of the road. And Miss Saddles had to hit that ditch. I mean, she hit it hard. <laughs> and do you think in 1964, a black boy going to be over in Saw Quarter in them woods, <laughs> helping some white woman that talk to you like a dog, out the ditch? I didn't say a word. I come straight on to the house. <laughs> come straight to the house <laughs> and, and pull that truck up in there at the house. And didn't say nothing. Man, by 7, 30, 8 o'clock, I imagine, I don't know who it was, but these men out of Beatrice, all of them pull up in the yard, shining their lights up in the house. Talking about, Loretta, send that boy out here that run my wife off the road. You talking about quiet in the house? (laughs) Nobody there. That's the first time I heard mom cuss. I imagine, I don't know who it was, but these men out of Beatrice, all of them pull up in the yard, shining their lights up in the house. Talking about, Loretta, send that boy out here that run my wife off the road. You talking about quiet in the house? (laughs) Nobody there. That's the first time I heard mom cuss. Mom would come out there, she didn't cuss them, but she did cuss the road. She said, that so-and-so road belong to my son just as much. She didn't cuss her, his wife either as Miss Sadler. Now get out of my so-and-so yard and walk back in the house. Man, them cars stayed out there. I reckon they was, I don't know what they were doing, but the motors were still running, the lights still shining up in the house. And about 10, 15 minutes later, they all pulled out. She was, you had a tough mother. She was tough. She that was the first time I heard Mom Loretta mm-hmm. Howard cuss. Mm-hmm. She was tough. But that was my experience of what they could do and what they would do to you. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That, was that was in 1964. Mm-hmm. That's just one example. There was yeah. plenty of them. Yeah. yeah. They were doing a lot of crazy stuff. Yeah. Do you remember the situation with Mr. Cunningham when they were trying to get to him? Well, they was always trying to... Uh, <coughs> smaller groups and sometimes... <coughs> Bigger groups, but mm-hmm. uh, he would tell me about a lot of issues where he had uh, confronted uh, opposition, sometimes close up and sometimes directly uh, from an individual white. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. who was a cousin of mine and said things to him or about it. But he said he just ignored it and kept right on doing what he had to do. Mm-hmm. He used to tell me about um, his wife, Miss Addie. Yeah. And he 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 said that uh, that the the white folks, the board, and he said so many folks tried to do stuff to him, mm-hmm. and 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 he would tell me if it weren't for Miss Addie and her her working, you know, for the for the for the board of education, and, and right. he, he would say she would when she get through talking mm-hmm. to him, he could go out and it <laughs> fire him up, but. That I, I can imagine, Miss Nanny. That's that's how you mm-hmm. kind of kept yours going. Mm-hmm. I, I know you uh, said it several times, but um, that's what gave the men the power to go out there—a supportive wife. Well, I, I I give her credit because she stood tall, and a lot of mothers were proud because I've seen cases where a mother sometimes almost snatch a child's arm off when he step out in front of something like that. But uh, she knew them children was right there, and she knew what they were doing and saying. But she never worried about it. She didn't say nothing about it. She let them say what they wanted to say. After all, they was on their side of the street and, in, and on their property. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they could stand out there and yell back at them all they wanted to. And so didn't none of them come over there on that side and mm-hmm. attempt to bother them. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they had no intention of doing that. No, it was just Mm-hmm. That little filth thing that they do, putting their little robes on and marching through time. Back then, that did carry a little feel, but mm-hmm. I feel reasonably sure mm-hmm. that it was our actions then that destroyed that fear of the Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. Black folks just ignored them mm-hmm. because if they went too far, when they come over to get us, some of us are going to get some of them, mm-hmm. one way or the other. There's going to be a race war. Mm-hmm. And thank God it didn't get to that. Okay, there's one other question I want to ask you. Was well, a couple more, but uh, Dr. Martin Luther King um, never set foot in Monroe County. Now, um, there is one story as to why that occurred. I heard that from Mr. Cunningham. But from your recollection, what was the story behind when he was right over the next door in Wilcox County? What was what was your recollection of that particular incident, why he didn't come? I'm not fully sure of the real reason why he didn't, mm-hmm. but I don't think it was fear on his part. Uh, it may have been that he just didn't get the right invitations from the right people to come for a particular a given program. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, now in a lot of cases, he went places where he didn't have to have an invitation. He just went because there was a need. Mm-hmm. And uh, we may have, well, actually, Monroe kind of has, I won't say it's been a perfect, by no means, mm-hmm. with race relations, but I can say that I feel that Race relations in Monroe County has not been nearly as bad in Monroe County because I grew up here as a boy, and I used to play with a little white boy right there uh, where the water board is now. He and I would ride all over town on our bicycles and tricycles and 
go up there and play in the coat high yard. And I was a year or two older than him, and his mother would give me the money to go to the drugstore every day. And we'd go up there and we'd go in the drugstore and had the balls, had the, the kind of ball on the, the stools at the bar. Mm-hmm. And at the drugstore, blacks could only just go to that front ice box and all the things close to kind. Mm-hmm. But me and that boy went in there and sit and I was cool. Now, we were just seven, eight years old. Mm-hmm. But every day, he and I go in that drugstore and sit up on the kind of stool. White folks sitting on both sides of it. Nobody said a word. Mm-hmm. Man in there, no question. Because mm-hmm. uh, I understood later on the reason was because I happened to be with her grandson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and everybody knew what was going to happen. She I have uh, really enjoyed um, talking to you. And I want to say to our listeners, we have covered um, in the recollection of all of our minds what comes to the top of our mind that really sticks out in the mind about our, our past here in Monroe County and Mr. H.B. William and uh, his relationship with, as a civil rights activist and, and some of the trials and tribulations that he went through, him and his family, to get where we are. Let's move up to um, modern, uh, what you might say, modern times, well, all the times, well, 40, 50 years, still modern time, but currently, uh, I know um, I've sat with you at your house there and you talk about issues in, that you have been involved in and, and, and dealing with so forth legal things. Uh, is there anything, uh, what I say, modern time in the last 10 or 12 years that you've had to deal with that comes to mind that still reminds you of the struggle of uh, black-white uh, relationships, and even though it's changed some, but uh, that lets you know that it's still here? Well, yes, I guess it's a lot of things. Of course, I think I'd like to say, first of all, that the, the positive things, uh, before we get into too much of the negative, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm very pleased with the fact that Monroe County, I think, when I'm talking about the whites, the power structure now, mm-hmm. I think that it was accepted a little better here than it was in most other kinds in the state. Uh, issues come up, and of course they were handled in a very intelligent manner. And there were one or two maybe extremes where blacks was kicked to the curb. But for the most part, I think our leadership, our political leadership, and mm-hmm. Monroe County has been very well established because somebody, and it had to be the whites, had enough foresight. Mm-hmm. to open the door for blacks to be elected officials and to join jobs that was previously given to all whites. And with the uh, coming of Banta Fair Mill in Monroe County, and mm-hmm. Monroe in particular, uh, where blacks and whites, basically women, mm-hmm. were hired, but they hired, including my wife, Mm-hmm. And she was there on an equal basis and an equal pay basis, and so were some others. And I think those were door openers uh, for showing that Monroeville and Monroe County was uh, interested in the upgrading of the race relations in Monroe County. Mm-hmm. And we 
had some very open-minded political leaders, judges, lawyers, things of that nature, mm-hmm. who uh, saw to it that even though there were more blacks in the courthouse than whites, naturally, but still they tried to go all out to be sure that justice was mm-hmm. dealt mm-hmm. in a uh, equal and fair share. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, to wrap it up, um, you first, Miss Nanny. Um, anything you would like for the people to know in regards to um, your three score and ten plus <laughs> years, Monroe County and uh, race relations? It goes way back. Fred, I could tell you when uh, we used to do, like you said, about race and all, you know. Mm-hmm. Ku Klux started back in, what, the 40s somewhere? Mm-hmm. And where uh, the Mockingbird mo- uh, apartment sitting right now mm-hmm. down in that area. It has improved itself. But we had to, like you said, go through a struggle to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we went to Vanity Fair in '64, the uh, right after right after Christmas. I got hired, and it wasn't easy because at that time or during that time, they refused to have more than two blacks at a time in the plant because, mm-hmm. like. My dad worked there in night started working there in nineteen thirty nine. He was oh. the first black at Vanderfair as a boiler. And then they had a black woman to come in as cleanup girl. Mm-hmm. In fact they after they added the other plants mm-hmm. they added hired more black women to clean up and that's all they would do is clean up. But my point is that when I applied for the job, I really wasn't going to clean up or sew or none of that stuff. I wanted to be a bookkeeper. Mm-hmm. But they weren't ready for book, black bookkeepers at that time, and they made that clear. The, the owners wanted us to what, sew. Mm-hmm. I sold five years. And after five years, I had another child, and I went back and I examined the mm-hmm. garments that I sold five years. So I, I really worked at ten years. And after that, you know, we moved on. But after, uh, I said maybe through two, three years, they started hiring a, a lot of black women, mm-hmm. which was needed because our people needed a job, like you say. Mm-hmm. And through it all, through all of that, they had, they were questioning you about these things. Did you not know that? Mm-hmm. What y'all gonna do with your money? <laughs> oh yes. You make money out of here, what y'all going to do with it? <laughs> you didn't know that, did you? No. Yes, they I did. Never. What y'all going to do with the money? They were making money. They even questioned me. Mm-hmm. And we wasn't getting but, what, twenty? How much, $2.50 oh. an hour. Mm-hmm. And what you going to do with that money? I said, you know what? 
I just want to make some money to take care of my family. Well, a lot of people worked there, wanted to build a house, want to, they needed homes to live in, a car to ride. We didn't need that. We already had that. So mm-hmm. our point, point was, like I told my husband, many days I didn't want to go because of the Atmosphere. attitude that yeah. toward us black people. Yeah, it's, it got better, but you know what? Through all of that, we had to do a dozen, at least a day. And if you didn't make your time, they let you go home. Mm-hmm. A lot of times I didn't make my time, but they let me stay there. Mm-hmm. Because I lived in town, and if those girls that, I'm just sharing this because, like, they don't know why they were still there. Mm-hmm. And some of those girls, before they left there, they were making $100 a day. And I couldn't make $100 a week. <laughs> oh. I couldn't make $100 a week. We were just making $50 a week. Every two weeks you get paid, right? That's $100. Mm-hmm. So I, it was a good thing for us. And then when they got so greedy, they started cutting the time. Sooner or later, you know, what is it? Uh, the loom place bought, her, bought them out. Fruit of loom. Fruit, fruit of a loom. Mm-hmm. So that kind of downgrade our people. Mm-hmm. But our people were able to get and buy and have what they needed before they shut it down. So I'm I'm proud of that because we had a chance to, you know, enjoy some of the riches too. <laughs> mm-hmm. So now we're still in a, at a standstill. Mm-hmm. Our people are still struggling. Where are we going from here? How are we going to get there, you know? Those are my questions. Mm-hmm. We're on welfare, you know, and more, mm-hmm. a lot of other things. But we did pretty good. I think we did pretty good after they opened the doors for us. Mm-hmm. But it was hard to get in that plant, Mr. Power. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Mr. William, um, wrap it up for us from your perspective of race relations here in Monroe County and, and how you've been blessed and how far you've come and to this day uh, uh, where we are right now. Uh, I might well start with saying uh, an old song that went like this. Came a long ways from St. Louis but we still got a long ways to go. We ain't quite home yet. Oh, it's progress. A lot of openness and a lot of things, but there's still that touch of racism that is, and the the objectives are still the same. It's just not as obvious as it has always been. And hopefully it will eliminate itself completely. I'm praying for that. Even before I die, I hope to be able to see a day when there is no racism or no racial prejudice. But as long as there are different people, you're probably going to find some touch of racism. Uh, and especially when it's going to find... The, the biggest problem with uh, where it is most pre- prevalent is going to be in economics. Mm-hmm. If, if we could get equal opportunities in the financial field and the economical system where... Everything was completely equal. 
at that time, I think that over a period of time, people would be able to move themselves up to an era where everybody would just look at everybody as an individual and not as a black or white or Indian or whatever, really young. And we're coming closer to that, but we're not quite home yet. And we are still fighting. We don't, when I sit here and talk, I'm not just talking in the past because I realize that there's a distance ahead of us. And even though I know that there are some young leaders coming on, but I also know that I can't throw up my hands, I can't stop now. And as long as I live, I've got to keep on moving because that's a problem. And there's no need of us fooling ourselves saying that we are home free because there's still a lot to be accomplished. And those of us that's in leadership positions are going to have to advance our methods, but we don't have to, can't afford to sit, stop and say, well, we have made it because we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. Well, Mr. H.B. William Homer, Miss um, Nanny, I would like for both of you to give me your full name and uh, for the record. Miss Nanny, you first. I'm Nanny Ruth Madison Williams. And Mr. Williams? Homer Beecher, B-E-E-C-H-E-R, Williams. All right. I thank you all, and I thank your daughter, uh, Andretta, for filming and uh, documenting voice as well. Thank you. Appreciate you inviting me. Thank you. All right. You've been just listening to Living Live History coming from 231 Sixth Avenue from Mr. Homer B. Williams and Ms. Nanny Williams, um, civil rights activists and still going strong today on House of Done Gospel Blog Talk Radio. Stay with us, and uh, we'll see you next time on House of Done Gospel History in Alabama. All right. All right. That sounds good. You have made it to the top there, (laughs) Fred. Start with them at eye level, and then on this corridor, they begin to rise. And then you get to this corridor, and this is when you begin to confront the scale of all of these lynchings. Whoa. This is something. Yes. Yes, we wanted people to have a sense of just the scale of what this violence, what this terrorism was. So this is over 4,000 that have been documented, but of course there are more. Thousands more. Thousands more. Thousands more. Will we ever even know how many? We will never know. Every name has its own story. Yes, that's right. This was a minister, Reverend T.A. Allen, who began talking to sharecroppers about their rights. And because he was doing that, the plantation owners, the, the landowners got together and they, they lynched him. And the proof they used that he was somebody worthy of lynching is that when they found his body, uh, he had a piece of paper that talked about sharecropper rights. And the other piece of paper he had in his suit jacket was a note that said, every man a king. Mm-hmm. A lot of these folks were lynched because they showed too much dignity. They showed too much humanity. He just wanted to be respected as a human being, mm-hmm. and it got him hanged.
Mr. Moria takes up six acres in the heart of Montgomery, Alabama. Perhaps the best-known city in the struggle for civil rights, Alabama also the scene of 361 documented lynchings. Among the more than 4,300 cases of lynching documented by Stevenson and his team was the story of Jesse Washington, a black man accused of a crime in Waco, Texas. One team member, criminal defense attorney Cy Sanit, found a newspaper account of the Washington member murders. She tells Winter it describes a crowd of 15,000 many dressed in their Sunday best. The power of the past of this place we call America. I think about my small town here in Beatrice and my life travels as a young man and my falls and mistakes and things like that and how God has brought us so far and how we even today in the small town of Beatrice we can't get along like we should. We clamor for each other's throats and things like that. We seem on the surface like we care for each other, but we kill each other with our deeds and our thoughts and our underhanded transactions and our underhanded backstabbing deals that we make. The awful power of God is in the affairs of man, and he's not blind. He's not blind to my mistakes and my Faults is not blind to yours, mistakes, and your faults. But one thing is for sure. God really loves humanity. But humanity has shown the most evil sides of itself in many facets of humanity. You can think of thousands and thousands of injustices to each that we do to each other. With that in mind, we hope that you pay attention to what's taking place in and around America. And guess what? Our day is coming. And I dare say our day may be here already. God is not mocked. In spite of my own iniquity, I wrestle with my own shortcomings. And I hope you wrestle with yours. And you call out to Jesus Christ, God Almighty, your Creator. Because He sits at the right hand of the Father. He's at the right hand of the Father where He's been for over 2,000 years waiting to hear you say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Jesus, God Almighty, our Creator, He truly loves you.
I don't think I've ever asked you directly uh, where you were when you heard that Dr. King had been shot. Well, Mr. President, on April 4th, 1968, I was in Indianapolis, Indiana, campaigning for Robert Kennedy. It was organizing a rally, and it was Robert Kennedy that announced to the group that Dr. King had been assassinated. Yeah, I remember the footage. I have some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. At the spot nine, there's a park. It's called King Kennedy Park. I have not been back to that spot in uh, 50 years, but I'm going back there mm. in the next day or so. Just to let you know, John, was one of my inspirations to get into public life. So I thought this would be a good opportunity to connect the, the people who inspired me with the next generation of, of young leaders who are going to be doing outstanding things themselves. I'm sorry about the assassination, Dr. King. Uh, how did you cope with his uh, assassination? Well. It was a very sad and dark time for me. He was my leader. He was my inspiration. But uh, when he was assassinated, I said to myself, listen, sir, you cannot get down. You got to pick him up and keep going. And that's what I've tried to do. The thing I regret, I think, more than anything else, and I probably didn't spend enough time with him and learning from him. I thought he would be around a long time. But it was the sense of urgency that we had, you know. Mm -hmm. Growing up now, I know that a lot of the things that we do and what we say, it could possibly come with consequences. I've, I've seen that through your work as being a president, president, your work as being a congressman, and then also a protester as well. Seeing someone, and then also documentaries about what you and the other protesters and historical figures had to do to make sure we have what we have right now. Without that, we wouldn't be sitting here having this type of conversation. So knowing that, I feel motivated to go out and say and do what I, what I believe and, you know, know that there may be some consequences that comes with it because I know something good could come out of it. And what way can being controversial be a benefit and a disadvantage? That's a great question. In 1963, I was 23 years old, and I was one of the speakers at the March on Washington. I spoke. You're the only living speaker left, aren't you? Only one. Out of the ten people I spoke. Dr. King spoke number ten. I spoke number six. And there were some people who suggested that my speech was too extreme, that it was too radical. But I felt what I had to say was important to be said. Black people in the South couldn't register to vote simply because of the color of their skin. In some places, people were asked to count the number of others in the bar so The number of jelly beans on the job. If, if you are speaking on behalf of social justice, then by definition, there's going to be some controversy. Because if it wasn't controversial, then somebody would already fix it. Dr. King was controversial, but he studied and thought 
and crafted what he had to say. And, and he knew when he spoke that he was expressing a truth as well as he could know it. On the Freedom Rides in 1961, I had a seatmate, Mike Gentleman from Connecticut, and we left on a Greyhound bus from Washington, D.C. And we arrived in a little town called Rockia, South Carolina, tried to desegregate a waiting room, a white waiting room. And we were attacked by members of the Klan. They beat us. They left us lying in a pool of blood. Many years later, this member of the Klan was in his 70s, and his son was in his 40s, came to my office and said, Mr. Lewis, I've been a member of the Klan. One of the people that beat you and your seatmate, I want to apologize. Will you accept my apology? Your son started crying. He started crying. And I said, I accept your apology. He said, will you forgive me? I said, I forgive you. The two of them hugged me. I hugged them back. And the three of us cried. That's the power of the way of peace and love. The power of the philosophy and the discipline of nonviolence. You respect the dignity and the worth of every human being. Part of what you always want to communicate to young people is that uh, being on the right side of history isn't always popular. No. no. And it isn't always easy. And you don't know when things are going to break your way. You don't know whether your labors will deliver. I said to the young people, especially students, I said, when you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have a moral obligation to do something, right. to say something. Right. And Dr. King inspired us to do just that. here tonight and plead with you. Believe in yourself and believe that you're somebody. And as I said to the group last night, nobody else can do this for us. No document can do this for us. No Lincolnian Emancipation Proclamation can do this for us. No Kennesonian or Johnsonian Civil Rights Bill can do this for us. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink of self-assertive manhood his own Emancipation Proclamation. Let anybody take your manhood. Be proud of our heritage. As somebody said earlier tonight, we don't have anything to be ashamed of. Somebody told a lie one day. They couched it in language. 
They made everything black, ugly, and evil. Look in your dictionary and see the synonyms of the word black. It's always something degrading and low and sinister. Look at the word white. It's always something pure, high, and clean. But I want to get the language right tonight. I want to get the language so right that everybody here will cry out, Yes, I'm black. I'm proud of it. I'm black and beautiful.
why they want me to come down and sing one song when I could look like <laughs> there's nothing like a little love and happiness you better hurt your mouth you... <laughs> hey 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 oh, oh okay we, 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 we'll just try to do what they asked us to do and that is no, 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 no,
say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they have committed themselves to that over that. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest
know, several years ago, I was in New York City. It was a dark Saturday afternoon. The minute black woman came up, the only question I heard from her was, you Martin Luther King? And I said, yes. The next minute, I felt something beating on my chest. Before I knew it, I had been stabbed by this demented woman. That blade had gone through and the x-rays revealed. The tip of the blade was on the edge of my aorta, the main artery. And once that's punctured, you drowned in your own blood. That's the end of it. It came out in the New York Times the next morning that if I had merely sneezed, I would have died. After my chest had been opened and the blade had been taken out from all over the states and the world, kind letters came in. One of them I will never forget. I had received one from the president and the vice president. I've forgotten what those telegrams said. I'd received a visit and a letter from the governor of New York, but I've forgotten what that letter said. But there was another letter that came from a little girl. Said simply, Dear Dr. King, while it should not matter, I would like to mention that I'm a white girl. I'm simply writing you to say that I'm so happy that you didn't sneeze. And I want to say tonight, I want to say tonight that I too am happy that I didn't sneeze because if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1960 when students all over the South started sitting in at lunch counters. And I knew that as they were sitting in, they were really standing up for the best in the American dream taking the whole nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by the founding fathers in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1961. We decided to take a ride for freedom and ended segregation in interstate travel. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1962. Negroes in Albany, Georgia, decided to straighten their backs up. And whenever men and women straighten their backs up, they are going somewhere because a man can't ride your back unless it is bent. If I had seen, I wouldn't have been here in 1963. Black people of Birmingham, Alabama, aroused the conscience of this nation and brought into being the Civil Rights Bill. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have had a chance later that year in August to try to tell America about a dream that I had had. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been down in Selma, Alabama to see the great movement there. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been in Memphis to see a community rally around those brothers and sisters who are suffering. I'm so happy that I didn't sneeze. Like anybody, I would like to live. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. 
So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Let us rise up tonight with a greater readiness. Let us stand with a greater determination in these powerful days, these days of challenge, to make America what it ought to be. as a great shock to discover that the country which is your birthplace and to which you owe your life and your identity has not in its whole system of reality evolved any place for you. It comes as a great shock around the age of five or six or seven, to discover the flag to which you have pledged allegiance, along with everybody else, has not pledged allegiance to you. It comes as a great shock to discover that Gary Cooper killing off the Indians when you were rooting for Gary Cooper, that the Indians were you. When I was growing up, I was taught in American history books that Africa had no history, and neither did I that I was a savage about whom the less said the better, who had been saved by Europe and brought to America. And of course, I believed it. I didn't have much choice. Those were the only books there were. I am stating very seriously, and this is not an overstatement, I picked the cotton. And I carried its market. And I built the railroad. Under someone else's wit. For nothing. For nothing. If one has got to prove one's title to the land, isn't 400 years enough? 400 years, at least three wars. The American soil is full of the corpses of my ancestors. Why is my freedom or my citizenship or my right to live there, how is it conceivably a question now? What we are not facing is the results of what we've done. What one breaks the American people to do for all our sakes is simply to accept our history until the moment comes when we, the Americans, we, the American people, we are trying to forge a new identity for which we need each other. Until this moment, there is scarcely any hope for the American dream because the people who are denied participation in it by their very presence will wreck it. At the very same time that America refused to give the Negro any land, 
through an act of Congress, our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did they give the land, they built land-grant colleges with government money to teach them how to farm. Not only that, they provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could mechanize their farms. Not only that, today many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to farm, and they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And this is what we are faced with, and this is the reality. Now, when we come to Washington, in this campaign, we are coming to get our check. of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. 